Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, and this week I am joined by Bruce Hines after the two of us have just seen Oppenheimer. Thank you, Bruce, for going quickly to opening day and seeing the movie after I asked if you would. And let's start out with some first impressions. Tell me, how did you feel coming out of that theater? I was very moved. I thought it was an incredible movie. I really did. And uh, it was just, it was so rich and so full of so much detail about so much history and so still relevant. And the act, everything about it was great. The acting, the cinematography, it was just an incredible film. I was very moved as well. I uh, And listen, I know the first thing we're going to do is some people are going to say, don't spoil it. Here's the spoiler alert, okay? There was this thing called World War II. Our scientists helped build an atomic bomb, but by the time they got it ready, the Germans had already surrendered, so they dropped it on Japan. And at the time they were conflicted at it about it, today in history we're conflicted about it, and that's what this film is about. So uh, you should all know that history from school. If you don't, well, it's okay. I think you'll still enjoy the movie. So that's, you know, uh, as far as dramatizing that, just I'll give one little thing that I was hoping to get your thoughts on. This film, I mean, there were a lot of scientists involved in helping create the first atomic bomb. J. Robert Oppenheimer is singled out because he was kind of the project director that the military selected for the actual making of the bomb. And he was a brilliant theorist. And, you know, how do you capture that on film, right? That you know, brilliant theorists in atomic theory. And I think this crew, director Christopher Nolan and the other people he worked with, did an amazing job with that. Weren't there some, wasn't there some incredible imagery just trying to help you think about the nature at the atomic level and that kind of thing? Did you get that sense that's what they were doing? Oh, for sure. There were those sort of graphics or special effects or whatever and you know it wasn't i don't you know as a physicist it wasn't exactly scientific but it really conveyed the idea that they were dealing with these forces and this phenomenon that weren't very well understood but they knew they would be very powerful yeah i mean i and i've been you know to prepare for this film i've been reading richard rhodes history of making the atomic bomb written back in the 80s i've always wanted to read that book i've been getting a little bit of the learning about the history of just understanding the atom and then the forces involved. And then these scientists realizing, wait a minute, now that we've figured out how to release some of these forces that could actually be turned into a bomb. Uh, that all gets compressed a little bit in this film, but I think they did a pretty good job giving you a sense of it. Right. Oh yeah. I think they did. And for, you know, a film, a popular film, you couldn't go too much into the science because um, it would just be, you know, people wouldn't get it. Right. Uh, not, not that people, you know, it's just like a field that unless you've studied it, it's hard to understand. But um, still, they put in just enough so people would know that there was a lot of science involved and these top scientists were needed in order to work it all out. Yeah, I mean, they they weren't even sure 
uh, I mean, that's one of the things I've enjoyed in reading the history was that these scientists would do the math and they'd be were just wait a minute if we do this, this is the result and that's incredible. And there's a they, they did pick one thing to, to dramatize. I wonder if they would at some point as as these scientists are working out the actual you know way that a bomb might work. In the film, it's Teller who does this. I can't remember who did it in the real history. But somebody realized, wait a minute, if you ignite a bomb like this, it the explosion may just keep going and ignite the entire Earth's atmosphere and kill every living thing on Earth. And they had to pause and say, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought they did a pretty good job with that. Yeah. And what was interesting to me about that was, so someone else did some mathematical simulations and they could say well the chances of it happening are near zero and that's uh the nature of science yeah particularly in the quantum physics world it's all based on probabilities right and so the way science works is somebody some theorists do a right. bunch of uh mathematical models right that seem to work but then they have to test it and it's not until you really test it if you know whether the mathematical model works or not. But all, before they set off that the Trinity test, the first one, you know, there was still some a little bit of uncertainty. Was right. it was the chain reaction going to continue into the atmosphere? Right. And there are other worries too. I mean, I, I there was one moment where they were like, "Well, if it's a dud." we're going to blow all this material across the desert and you know yeah. then we're all in a lot of trouble. So anyway, they I thought that part they did really well. The part I was less familiar with was the post-war controversy that they really uh is a lot of the drama of the movie. I thought they handled that really well. I didn't realize, I mean I knew that Killian Murphy was going to be playing Oppenheimer and I I've, I've loved some of the things he's been in before. I didn't know Robert Downey Jr. was going to have such a big role in yeah. this movie and he was great wasn't he oh he was just such a good actor and the makeup on him you know they made him look like this almost a different person because it's hard to recognize same thing gary oldman as truman it's like oh wait a minute that's the same guy that played churchill in, <laughs> yeah. in the other in the other film oh, I, i'd forgot about that. <laughs> oh yeah so many interesting things uh and again it's it's about that conflict that you know they're building this incredibly destructive thing and what's the morality of it i mean i kind of figured that's what they'd be wrestling with and that they do a brilliant job with that yeah i thought so too and that's always true of any you know you get scientific discovery out of that comes technology and whatever technology that is it can be used for positive things or for negative things and it's always a question now this is more pronounced than most because you know, it's nuclear weapons. Um, but, you know, like today with AI, that could go really in a bad way or it could be very beneficial. Right. And we're seeing, definitely seeing some negative things coming out of AI. But, uh, yeah. well, let me just back up a little bit. And, you know, you've been a wonderful uh, part of the bunker community. You've written some wonderful pieces for us about your experience in Scientology. We just had another one this week where you talked about how important statistics were in Scientology and that great ending about seeing those Moody's going through the same thing. That was, a, I thought that was really wonderful. Uh, 
but you're also a physicist. And I've always kind of wondered, can you can you help us understand which came first, the Scientology or the physics? Well, um, the physics first. Um, the whole way it went was um, I went to university and for three years, one year was in England, and I was a physics major. I was also pre-med. I come from a family of doctors. And so I didn't know if I'd be a doctor or a physicist. I was sort of trying to work it out. Um, and so I decided, okay, I'm just going to take a year off and think about it. I'm going to work. And, and as a result of that, I got drafted into the U.S. Army, which was not what I intended at all. I didn't think I would get drafted based on a number of factors. Anyway, I got sent to Germany. And it was there while I was in the Army I started going to a Scientology mission in Stuttgart, Germany. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And that's sort of where I kind of really got involved. I had done a little introductory course in Denver before I went in the Army, but I wasn't, I had no intention of continuing. Anyway, so then 30 years later, um, I get out and move back to Denver. And after living in Colorado for a year, I had Colorado residency again. I could go to the University of Colorado and get low tuition because I'm a resident and it's a state university. And then I went ahead and finished my physics degree. And then I did graduate studies and then I ended up working in a physics research lab at University of Colorado. Wow. So I guess the big question from someone like me is while you were in Scientology, since you did have some physics training before that, were you conflicted about some of Hubbard's ideas about science and about, you know, his ideas about the cosmos and everything? Very definitely. But as with many things, you, I would manage to convince myself that, well, Hubbard knew better. No, there, I remember some lecture where he talked, he was critical of Einstein and how Einstein should have known better. And, and um, but yeah, uh, Every time I would read where he would say something about physics, I thought, oh, God, that does, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> what do you mean trillions of years ago? The universe isn't even that old, you know, the stuff like that. So, you know, it's like one of those Hubbard, those things in Scientology where you just sort of figure out how to dismiss those ideas. So you could stay with the program. Speaking of Einstein, when they, uh, here's a little spoiler, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the film. Early on, you see Einstein in the distance, and you see his mane of hair. And my immediate thought was, yeah, that's all we'll see in the film. He's just a figure. He's never a real character. And then he ends up being a real character in the film. And some, some very important scenes. I love that, because Einstein's usually just sort of an abstraction uh, most of the time and for him to be portrayed as an actual character with some you know interesting things to say i really liked that yeah i did too and then at the very end where they show what the exchange was between oppenheimer and einstein by the lake that <laughs> okay <laughs> i won't say anything but boy was that a great scene <laughs> no you know i i remember there was some point i was thinking are they going to pay off that because they kept bringing that up there's a scene early in the movie where Oppenheimer and Einstein have a private moment and there's as the film goes on it becomes more and more interesting what did they say what did they say and we kept I kept I started thinking are they going to pay that off 
they paid it off in a big way. It's <laughs> the writing in this it was really brilliant. Uh, I really appreciated who some of the characters like. Um, I'm I'm reading now about the, you know the creation of Los Alamos, and how Oppenheimer had been selected by this tough, large guy named Brigadier General Joe uh, Groves, and I was wondering who they were going to have. It's Matt Damon, and he's so good. <laughs> what an actor! He's it was great. So was good. Great. Well, so uh, Scientology and Oppenheimer. Now, I, I sent you an article earlier, Bruce. I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but... I did. I read it. I, You know, one thing I was curious about was that L. Ron Hubbard tried to insert himself in this history. I don't know how many people know that, but that Hubbard claimed to have some role in this whole history of the atomic bomb. And sure enough, it was touched on in the film, the particular yeah. thing this petition by Leo uh, Zillard that went to President Truman that did come up in the film. I was I was curious if it if it would. And uh, did you do you remember when you were in hearing anything about Hubbard's claims about having put down a nuclear scientist revolt during the war or anything like that? I did not. You know, unless you heard that, I guess it was 1957 lecture, which typically. You do usually you don't hear the 1950s lectures when you're okay. Here. Okay, um, it's more the from the St. Hill era. Those are the most of the lectures that you listen to when you're being trained as an auditor or whatever. Which would be so, like 60 up to 66, something like that. 59 yes, to 66. Correct. Yeah. And so I didn't know about it, and it wasn't played up. But it would—it's typical Danny Sherman to find this and <laughs> try to make a thing out of it. Right. So, uh, for those of us read the road readers who weren't around then, what in 2012, uh, they had a LRH birthday event, and what Dan Sherman, the recently deceased uh, LRH biographer, would do every year at the LRH birthday event was come up with some little thing about Hubbard to you know talk about what a genius he was and what a brilliant guy he was and so some little piece of history he would dig out and for 2012 what he dug out was this claim hubbard made in 1957 in a lecture in 1957 that in the war in 45 hubbard and his friend johnny arwine had personally put down a rebellion by the scientists working on the atomic bomb yeah, and they were going to use atomic weapons against the government or something. It's just crazy. <laughs> I mean, Hubbard, he loved he loved to put himself at the center of things, though, didn't he? Yeah, malignant narcissist. <laughs> so the actual history is that, you know, once they were getting close to making this thing, the gadget, they called it, uh, Hungarian physicist Leo Zillard and some others put together a petition to send to Truman, cautioning him about using this weapon and, you know, Germany's surrender. We don't need to use it against Japan. And about 60 scientists signed it. Oppenheimer did not. And yeah. they, they dramatized that in the movie. Well, Hubbard's version was that he, he had showed up in Caltech and had found these scientists were about to revolt against the government and he personally put it down 
I mean, just crazy, isn't it? Uh, makes no sense. <laughs> well, as you pointed out in the, the piece you did on the bunker, there are so many contradictions in the story. Yeah, and and and, and you know, the, the the record shows that he when he was at George Washington University in 1931, he did take a class in uh I don't I don't think it was called nuclear physics exactly. It was called like molecular it was atomic and molecular phenomena. Okay, thank you. And I think he either flunked it or got a D. He, fa he failed it. <laughs> okay. And, you know, 31, that's pretty early. You know, I mean, you know, good for him for taking a course like that, but he, he, he failed it. But that didn't keep him from claiming to be a nuclear scientist later yeah. on. When, yeah. did you, when did you realize that a lot of his stories were kind of full of hot air? Probably it wasn't until... I was out, I left in 2003, and probably a year or so, you know, it was gradual, but after, you know, six months to a year, I started to think like, mm. I remember um, talking to someone and saying like, well, you know, Hubbard's ideas were originally to come up. And I still said that even after I'd left, but I, you know, it's a, it was a very gradual thing, but um, you know, now I know he basically got his, any ideas he had, he didn't come up with himself. He got them from someone else. And, um, but I, you know, over the first couple of years I was out, I started to um, question all the stuff he said. Yeah. I mean, look, there's still a lot of independent Scientologists that soured on Miscavige, but they still really believe that Hubbard is who he said he was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah boy what a kind job and then uh so he he told his own scientologist in this 1957 lecture that these nuclear scientists were going to use their nuclear weapons against the u.s government and he talked them out of it and saved the world basically yeah but then just a year later he wrote a letter to an actual physicist, this Condon guy, and was sympathizing with the outcasts. Now, now instead of claiming that he put down these scientists, now he sort of claims he's one of them. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he <laughs> as another malign scientist, you know, who hasn't gotten credit for his great work, and you know, the people are trying to stop him or something. Right. And so he he proposed to Condon that they get some land in Cuba. Yeah, we'll go with <laughs> oh, boy. This is 1958. His timing is perfect. And uh, that they get some land in Cuba and create this sort of like paradise for scientists, outcasts, Scientologists, uh, scientists, of which he is one. Right. A scientist. And uh, that Things are calm in Cuba. Well, they didn't stay calm for very long. No, not like six months, maybe. Yeah, then the whole place started to change. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, just and one little footnote to that. So I found this. I can't remember how I found this letter, but I've got this. Maybe it was Lauren Wolf gave me that letter, and it, you know, it's just so clear it's Hubbard. He's, you know, he's bragging about himself. He's an outcast. He was a you know engineering major at George Washington, bragging about all these things. 
And um, it, but it doesn't look like his signature. It looks like somebody has signed it for him, which I think happened at some points, you know, but it's so clear it's him. But some science, some uh, Hubbard apologists have claimed that that letter I published was not written by Hubbard. And that it of wasn't. Of course they would say that. Yeah, of course they would say that. So there's been a thing for many years. I don't, you probably know, I don't know. There was, was a thing called the SO number one line. SO is standard order number one. And that was that anybody, any letter addressed to Elwin Hubbard would be received by Elwin Hubbard. So there was a whole line set up. I knew the people that lived down the hall at the end base and they were the SO one line and these letters would come in and they would answer them. And they were trained to do Ron's signature and they would send these back. So the fact that it doesn't look like his signature doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, look, I, I think that this is definitely a letter that he wrote. It's his kind of idea. And then one of his underlings signed it for him. And, you know, that proves to some people that he had nothing to do with it. But I I think he definitely did. Uh, and it's just one of those wonderful, nutty Hubbard things that he would write to an actual scientist and say, hey, let's 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 go to Cuba. <laughs> yeah, with these 64 people who signed the petition or whatever it was. Right, 13 years earlier or something. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I love talking about his cosmology and stuff. I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's the age thing that that he, he you know, the, the, the fundamentalist Christians say the entire universe is only 6,000 years old. Right. Scientologists go the other direction. It's quintillion years old and uh you and i live countless trillions of years yeah well the number the most definite the oldest number that i uh, that i read personally it's from the ot3 materials and there was this thing called incident one that we all experienced supposedly and the date of that is four quadrillion so that's you know a thousand trillion times four um, and there was another thing that happened at the uh, event at the, was it the shrine or I don't know, but when they announced Ellen Hubbard had passed away <clears throat> and Pat Brokers on the stage, he held up a piece of paper with this, this date. And it was like, you know, went lines and lines and lines. Like I, who knows how big that number is. But... I counted it, Bruce. I, <laughs> I got it. I got a still. <laughs> it's a uh, number three or four followed by 276 digits. Oh now, boy. Now you know at that scale, it doesn't matter what the digits are. It's just, you know, oh, however, no. right. And uh, I actually wrote out an engineer friend of mine helped me write out one trillion, 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 trillion. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But that, but see, that was an interesting idea to me that. Okay, as as Scientologists, everyone's supposed to go back on their whole track of existence, and auditing will help you go back further and further. But as the great Thetan, as the leader of Scientology, nobody could go farther back than Hubbard, right? Isn't that what basically wasn't that what Pat Broker was saying that Hubbard had really gone to the very beginning of things and it was Yeah, and really gotten to the bottom of everything. All our troubles. Uh, also that, uh, the Van Allen belt is, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Hot, right. It, 
what was that? Okay, yeah, he remember. said it was, he, he said, well, the Van Allen belt is really hot, by the way, or something like that. He would, he was, ex, you know, he'd gone exterior as, as a Phaeton and was traveling up there. I, that's the part I remember. And he said it was really hot. Um, I don't think it really has a temperature, anyway, you know, scientifically. Right. And that he almost got run over by a freight train on Venus. Yeah. There was a guy, I don't know, maybe you saw it back on, in the clam bake days, and his um, handle was Venusian train driver. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I look, he, he loved telling tall tales to an audience that couldn't fact check him, I guess. Yeah, well, there's no way. And they would, they were, they had already drunk the Kool Aid, and so they're just going to buy it. And that he had been to heaven twice, uh, thirty trillion years ago, something like that. Uh, yeah, and it looked like Bush Gardens. He said. <laughs> oh man, it's just too much. But I guess, I guess uh, maybe my favorite is this idea that. Uh, at the end of this lifetime, when th this particular vessel expires and your Thetan is freed, that you are whisked to Venus or Mars to be implanted by these invader forces. Yeah, right? so you forget about your existence. Or you forget everything. And then you're shot down to be put into a body or something like that. Right, that, that uh, after some time on Venus or Mars... You get shot back down to the the Sea of California, and then you make your way to a maternity ward to jump into a baby. Oh, I didn't know about the the um, whatever that is the yeah the Sea of Cortez or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's what he said in one lecture. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if he changed well, it. Well, it's funny um, when I was still in, there was some people, some Scientologists would talk about it that. When you die, you should travel underground um, and go to a maternity ward to get a new body so that you don't get sucked up by the invader force, whatever they have. <laughs> right. And so I've explained this sometimes. People, even Scientologists sometimes, you sure are like, look, I'm just telling you what Hubbard said. So the <laughs> idea was you're your lifetime is over, your Thetan leaves the body, you go to uh, Venus or Mars, they implant you to erase your memory, send you back down, you jump into a baby, and you go through this whole cycle over and over again. The goal of Scientology then would be not only to help you recover those memories of the previous lives, but then once you have finally reached OT8 and above and are a operating Thetan, you can then resist the invader forces, not get sucked to Venus or Mars between lives, and retain your memories lifetime after lifetime as a powerful operating fate. That's yeah, the promise, yeah. right? Oh, no, that's exactly it. <laughs> and you'd have these amazing abilities to boot. You'd be able to communicate telepathically. You'd be able to move objects through telekinesis. All sorts of promises. And and mocking things up, right? Isn't that literally creating yep. matter with your mind? Yes. In fact, the whole universe, it was the mutual action of all of us mocking up matter 
when it became the universe. And also that the laws of physics are exist only through agreement. Another one of my favorite Hubbard tales is Arslicus. Do you know this story, Bruce? Yeah. <laughs> that there's this uh, city named Arslicus on some planet somewhere. And uh, that a bricklayer was putting bricks together on a building on Arslicus and he suddenly stopped believing in gravity. And it broke the agreement and all the buildings started floating. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Hubbard was just trying to explain that the only reason we have the world we have is because we've agreed that that's the way it should be. Yeah. Which I, I, I guess I can understand how that would be attractive to somebody that would like to like change their situation just by thinking about it. I guess that's what he was promising them, right? Yep. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there was one, you know, there's maybe you know this. Um, there's the running program where you, right. you just run and go around and around the pole. And it was based on a some sort of a therapy or something system jillions of years ago. And there was a pole out in space, and Thetans would go there, and I don't know, they would sort of pay money or some exchange and they would go around and around and around it. Um, and that was that's what the running program is based on. That this, there was this old, old, I don't know. He never really, you know, he leaves a lot of stuff out. So it leaves you guessing. But anyway, he said that. And, and if you viewed it from a distance in space, you would see this ring of things. They kind of glowed or something. You see this ring going around the central point out in the center of the universe someplace. And so to this day, Scientologists are paying about $3,000 to $5,000 for the privilege of running around a lighted pole in a giant domed room on the sixth floor of the superpower building, also known as the flag building in Clearwater, Florida. That's right. And, and some and poor RPFers had to do it in Griffith Park way back in the day really yeah and also it in it the in happy valley as it's called you know near the end base they, they had to do it there too and on the end base now there is a place for the the running program where there's a pole and a this circular area right well i i love the, the fact that at flag it's like an attraction though you know and it's not like i mean i i've heard about people who were punished by running around in the desert, you know, heat at its base. But the people who come to flag and run around that pole of the flag building, they're paying for it. I mean, yeah. and then they they are required to talk about all oh, the incredible cognitions they had <laughs> while they were running all day and so exhausted they hallucinated, right? I think so. <laughs> That's just crazy. It's so crazy. I, I love that whole aspect, though, of, of Hubbard and Scientology and the crazy physics, crazy astronomy. It's it's wild. And I was looking for that in this film, that if that, that Zillard petition came up, that that would be the connection to Hubbard's claims uh, to have been mm -hmm. part of this whole thing. So I'm glad they touched on it anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think Groves actually um, sort of kept him away because he didn't want it to interfere with 
the work that was going on at um, Los Alamos. But, you know, he did mention it. And Silzard, uh, did they mention his name? I think they did. Leo Zillard? Yeah, there's yeah. there's a seed where he and Hill walk up to uh, Oppenheimer with the petition. As, oh, right. okay. as Oppenheimer's about to go with Groves to see Truman or something, I don't know. They walk up to him with the petition and say, listen, we, you know, we really don't think they should drop this on Japan or whatever. And Oppenheimer slaps it away. And I don't want anything to do with okay. that. Yeah. yeah. I um I read your email after after I saw the movie. So I wasn't familiar with the name Zillard at that point. Right. No, the 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 Rhodes book is fun because it starts the very start of that gigantic book in this huge history is that it was Leo Zillard who had some experience in biology with something that was like a chain reaction in biology, who one day suddenly realized something like that could happen at the nuclear level. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, and gave him the kind of credit for the first person who really started to think about with these radioactive materials they've been studying, the uranium and stuff like that. They're giving off particles, but what happens if they start bumping into each other? You know, yeah, right. and they kind of get that's how that whole book starts. It's with Zillard imagining uh chain reaction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, there's so many little things. I can't wait to see the my my only problem with the movie, it was really loud, which was great most of the time, but there were times when the soundtrack was drowning out the dialogue a little bit. And I really missed having subtitles because i tend to watch movies with subtitles at home and uh there were definitely some times when i strained to understand because they cover so much stuff in that movie so many characters so many scientists amazing yeah I, that impressed me also the um i didn't go to an imax theater although there is one pretty close by i went to a smaller closer one and so i i didn't have the the sound didn't seem to drown out the dialogue so much when I saw it. It, you know, it might have been the theater I was in, and it just wasn't a great mix or something. Yeah, because I I also noticed that they were doing some very interesting things with sound the soundtrack. I thought they were uh, driving the story in a way with sound that seemed a little bit new to me. It was very mm -hmm. interesting the way I, I I'm looking forward to seeing it again maybe with some subtitles or something at some point, uh, see if I could pick up even more. But I think so. Within, in those IMAX theaters, they can do more with sound. You know, it's not just stereo. It's like oh, right. speakers all over the place. Yeah, maybe that's what was going on. Well, let's talk a little bit about the big ideas in this film, uh, Bruce, because, I mean, look, it centers around one man and how he was treated after the war and whether or not that was fair or not, but it, it had some bigger ideas in it as well, especially with some of that imagery at the end. What, what were some of the things you took away from this film? Well, I mean, a big one is, well, a few big ones. <clears throat> one is, the, you know, obviously the nuclear threat that started at that time is very much real and particularly you know it's even heightened these days because you've got north korea they don't i don't think they really have 
nuclear weapons speak of, but they're pretending they do. And Putin keeps sort of hinting that, you know, you guys keep it up, we're, you're going to regret it. So there's that. Um, other big themes for me were uh, anti-Semitism, um, the using political clout to subjugate groups and how the military has too much power. And, and, and that sort of uh, constant tension between national security versus individual freedom and... Yeah, exactly. exactly. How science is being used for good or for ill... A lot of really potent ideas in this thing, but yeah, definitely, uh, you know, we watched the this one device get built and and detonated, and its incredibly destructive power, and it's and it's sort of hinted at what sort of damage was done in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but then I, you know, those final images of the film, I was, you know, I just kept thinking. The situation today is far worse, but we never think about it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> the one scene where um, they did the Trinity test, you know, and they weren't sure if it was going to work. You know, they had this spherical implosion. They decided that was the best way to de detonate the thing. And that was plutonium that they had in that bomb. And but just the way they shot that and when it when it went off and they show these different people and it was really powerful and you see them you they really depicted the sheer power of a bomb like that and you know the bombs we have these days are like a thousand times more it's incredibly frightening well and one one little detail that i really appreciated uh that was a physics thing was even the smaller explosions they showed like when they're testing something they show it go off and then comes the sound, right? I don't know if you right. noticed that. You know, usually, oh, yeah. you know, usually in movies, whenever there's an explosion, you immediately hear it, even if it's in the middle of space. They don't care if it's a movie; you're going to hear the explosion. And you know, they're they're just testing a little thing out there, and it's you know, hundred yards away. You see it. And there's no sound. Bam! And then the sound arrives. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, that they're they're paying attention to the physics of it. Yeah, and we've all experienced it with lightning and thunder. You see right. the lightning flash, and then you wait a while, and then, you know, if you count five seconds, that means it was about a mile away. And they, I thought that was great. And again, it was that attention to scientific detail. I really appreciate that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. I was curious, though, and I don't know if you know anything about this, of, of all those, there were a lot of people out there for that Trinity test, all oh, men, Um how many of them developed leukemia later or whatever? I mean, I, I don't know how protected they were from that bomb and its fallout. Yeah, um, it's really true. Some, oh God, it's a while ago now, but there was a lot of after effects of radiation on the a lot of the people that worked on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, but also particularly in Chicago and um Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. they were dealing directly with radioactive materials. And I don't think they had that much experience with it. Right. Yeah, but that's a good question. I don't know. 
you know, there were some, some of those people were pretty close. Yeah. You know, relatively speaking. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, I thought, you know, it all, there was also the whole McCarthyism undercurrent in this movie. Yeah, There's yeah, yeah. a really interesting thing about the Spanish civil war. I, I don't know if you noticed, but, uh, so it's another film that captures that era and how people that had, you know, uh, become sympathetic to the Communist Party in the 1930s. Later, they were being questioned about it, that kind of, you know, involvement in Spanish Civil War. So this was another film that tends to show uh, a sort of uh, persecution of people that had that kind of left political background. What I found interesting is one of the executive producers of this film is James Woods. And I, I don't know if you know much about him, but his politics are so far right. I just find it yeah. interesting. That... I'd forgotten that till you just mentioned it. <laughs> I want to read yeah. a little bit more about that because I'm told that he was really behind this for many years to get it made. But there's no conservative really? spin really... on this at all. It's it's really about, you know, kind of what, what we often see in these films is, you know, McCarthyism punishing people for uh views that at the time were you know very mainstream to, to us today progressive views but anyway that was another thing and then uh yeah like i said i was thrilled to see einstein as a real character and not just sort of a symbol of genius or whatever and uh i mean could you tell me a little bit about the kind of, I mean, what's physics doing today? What kind of thing are you studying now? Well, what the experiment I was involved in um, for many years, actually, since about 2006, and still am, and it is, uh, it's an international collaboration, many universities and the national, several national labs here in the U.S. and in Canada. And um, it's, trying to identify what this stuff called dark matter is. Oh, you're working on that? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was called the Cryogenic Dark Matter Search. That's the group I'm part of, or CDMS. And um, dark matter is a thing. It's different than black holes. A lot of people will confuse those things. And it's different than dark energy. That's something else also. But there's a lot of evidence, you know, irrefutable evidence let me try to take a shot at it let me try to take a shot at it okay because i'm an amateur astronomer and i have a telescope and i take pictures of things like galaxies and you know about those spiral galaxies they're so cool collections of hundreds of millions of stars and it rotates very slowly well astronomers can actually take velocity readings on the stars and get a sense of how fast the stars are actually moving in that galaxy. And it should be a reflection of the amount of mass in that galaxy. In other words, if there's a certain amount of stars and stuff, it'll spin at a certain rate. And the problem is, with those measurements, they're finding that these stars are moving at a rate suggesting there's much more mass there than you can see. And so what is there that we can't see? That's dark matter, right? That's exactly right. That's a perfect uh, <laughs> explanation. Um, it was a, an astronomer, wasn't a physicist, it was an astronomer in Switzerland named Zwicky in the 1930s. 
and he was doing the exact sort of measurements you're talking about. He, he observed, you know, spiral galaxies through telescopes and over a period of time measured their rate of rotation and did some calculations said, no, wait a minute, they're, they're going, this speed's way off. You know, if you can imagine spinning a bicycle wheel and then spinning a car tire, they're, you know, with the same amount of force, they're not going to go the same speed. And um, so anyway, he was the guy that came up with the word dark matter in German, it's dunkle materia. That's what um, what he used. But anyway, it's been used ever since then. Right. And so there's all those measurements, much more precise measurements of galaxy rotations since that point in time, because we have more technology to do so. And then there's also some other very convincing arguments. Um, you know, Einstein, one of the things he figured out in his theory of general relativity is that light, when it goes through a gra gravitational field, it bends. Right. It's called gravitational lensing. It's like light bends through a lens. It'll also bend through a gravitational field. And so people have, there'll be a cluster of galaxies where there's a lot of mass and light coming from behind, like another galaxy behind or some object, they can see how it bends as it goes through and bends way more than it should given what the amount of visible matter is there. Right. It's another very convincing evidence that this stuff, there's something there. So we in other words, we, we, we can see these galaxies very well, but the effects of gravity suggest there's more there than we can see. That's so, right. so what are you doing to investigate that dark matter? What's, what's your experiment? So, um, it's based on a certain theory that the dark matter is a certain type of particle, um, you know, a very small particle, like comparable in size to a proton or a neutron. And that these things would have been formed very early on in the universe, like right after the Big Bang. And the nature of the particle is that it does not interact at all with elect electromagnetic radiation, which light is. So it doesn't reflect, it doesn't absorb, and it does not emit any electromagnetic re radiation. Wow. And see, that's what we observe. When you see a star and you see the light, that's electromagnetic radiation. Or if you have a radio telescope and you sense it somehow, that's also electromagnetic radiation. So the theory is that there's this a certain type of particle and many, many theories on what these particles would be, but that would be the main quality is that they have mass because they obviously have mass and they don't interact with light in any way. And that's why it's dark. And so um, originally we set up an experiment in the bottom of the mine of a mine in Northern Minnesota. It's called the Sudan mine. It was an old iron mine that basically got mined out. And so there's a research lab. It was 2,500 feet below the surface. And we set up these special, very sensitive detectors there. The theory being that these particles, they're around us all the time. And a certain number are going to pass through. And if they, these detectors are tuned in such a way that if one went through, they'd be able to tell if it was some other particle, because there's all sorts of particles flying around, or if it was the particle of this particular type that we're looking for. So um, that went on until about 2016, or I don't know, about 15 years. 
And we're now building a new one in Canada, in Ontario, in a place called Sudbury. And there's a big mine there called Snow Lab. And a bigger, better, deeper, 6,800 feet below the surface. And we're just now getting it geared up to uh, wow. start actually measure, making measurements and see if we could find some of these things. Now, are these sensors sitting in water like the neutrino uh, detectors are? Um, no, but in, in it's called Snow Lab, which is the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, SNO Lab. And so some of the big neutrino experiments are there. These experiments are super, super cold crystals. Ah. They're either silicon or ger germanium, very pure. And you get them really, really cold. And you also get them really, really deep. So you don't have interference from other things. And it's sort of like, an, it's pretty accurate though. If one of these particles comes in and hits a nucleus of, <clears throat> in this crystal, it kind of rings. Ah. It hits it and it makes a vibration and it goes throughout the whole crystal because this crystal is very pure. Right. And so there are the special sensors that could pick that up. So, I mean, is it a situation where we're setting up all this equipment, waiting for the first dark matter particle to come through and be discovered or is it there's a certain amount that comes through and you're measuring it yeah it's it's a whole statistics thing you know you take for years you take data and there's all sorts of things that hit these detectors even though we're 6800 feet underground you could never do it at the surface of the earth because it'd be like trying to observe a pebble you throw into a pond in the middle of a hailstorm you right. never see it right really really cold and really really far underground but there's still stuff that gets through um like this is an example regular lead which we have to use to shield try to shield the radiation it itself is too radioactive uh, so they have to get what they call ancient lead which is lead that um the best is from shipwrecks from the 1800s wow. on ships and they bring it up and they make we make the shield out of that it's called ancient lead um, but it's, they're just so sensitive. And so you, you, you know, you'll go for six months at a time and you're just recording event after event after event where these, there's many, many detectors and they're sensed by these super, uh, it's, they're super conducting electronics that have the sensitivity to pick this stuff up. And, and then you look at all of it and you sort it all out and, if you know there, there's a lot of rules and statistics on what what qualifies would qualify as a bona fide uh discovery one event would not oh. and you know you, you sort of need a bunch of them and you have to have anyway it gets pretty technical but um there's a there's our experiment and then there's other major collaborations in the world all competing for this wow there's another technology that uses huge vats of liquid xenon. And they, they would also supposedly be sensitive to this kind of particle. But anyway, it's kind of fun. <laughs> if you like that sort of thing. Absolutely. That's great. Well, whew, thank goodness I knew what dark matter was. <laughs> yeah, you're, you, you, you had it exactly right. I was impressed. Uh, thank you. I, don't, I couldn't define dark energy, but I dark matter I got a grasp on. Uh, yeah, and I'm really enjoying reading about the nuclear stuff. I mean, it's it's making some sense to me about 
like how you build an atomic bomb is you jam together these you know elements that when they're forced together closely they start this crazy runaway chain reaction that takes millionths of a second it's incredible yeah it's pretty amazing it really you, is have you ever visited any of those sites at all no um i know there's a national lab at los alamos now but um we that's not one of the labs that's involved in our experiment um i have been to they, they talk about berkeley there and the livermore berkeley lab is right next to university of california berkeley and, and i've been there um not not the other ones though i've been to oak ridge or brookhaven or those places right i went to white sands oh really yeah and i was only i don't know a few miles from the trinity site i think and i was at this other that's a special lab anyway long story for astronomy magazine i did that but uh you were well, doing an article for astronomy magazine yeah, you know, uh, back in, uh, this was like 98 or something. Uh, in a, in am For amateur astronomers, kind of the ultimate thing you could do, because you can actually get your name on it, is discover a new comet. And so <laughs> there are some, because that's the one thing, you know, you, even if you discovered a planet, you don't get to put your name on it. But you discover a comet, you get your name on it. Yeah, so, so amateurs, that's a that's there are people, amateur astronomers at night after night after night set up and sweep certain parts of the sky where you're more likely to find the new comet. These guys are so dedicated. And then around the mid-90s, all of a sudden, all of the new comets were being discovered by something called linear. And uh, you know, instead of Johnson or Hines or Ortega comet, you know. Linear, linear 21, linear 23. What's hmm. linear, right? Well, it turned out it was a military thing or it had military origins and they were very sensitive about it. And uh, I wanted to know what it was. A lot of us wanted to know what it was. And so Astronomy Magazine, I I don't remember who, if I pitched it to them or pitched it to me, they pitched it to me. But these guys at Linear, were I, I was bugging them. That's what it was. I kept sending them letters because it was in Arizona. I was with the Phoenix New Times. And I said, we want to see what you're doing. How are you getting all the comments? And finally, they decided, okay, we're going to have a press day, which didn't make me very happy because that means a bunch of reporters would be there. But I went out there and what they had done, you know how a chip is, you know, electronics on a silicon wafer. And it's, you know, it's some, of, some of them are a little bigger, like the detector ones. But they're usually made from a, big silicon wafer yeah, right i'm very familiar with those right their detector was the whole wafer oh <laughs> uh. right it was the biggest I, I i that might be common now but in 1998 a a detector the size of a wafer it was incredible and it had been developed for the air force to spy on things on earth and then somebody at the air force had the foresight to turn it up and look at the sky and then suddenly they're finding all these comments and suddenly yeah they had put it on some small telescopes and they had uh developed some software that was really sophisticated that would only pay attention to stuff that was moving so you could have a thousand you have a ten thousand stars in the picture they didn't care what's moving and they showed me the software they 
it was really powerful. Remember, this is 98. Okay, this is 20, 25 years ago. But whatever computers they were using, they put it up on the screen. This 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 uh, image they had taken with the linear chip covered with stars. And they say, now wait, bloop, 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 stars disappeared. And then there was just like three things because they had moved. So just at, at, in 1998, that was absolute state of the art. So they were so good at that. They were discovering everything. So that that was why I got to go out there, and uh, it was a place normally journalists would not be allowed. But I think they've now been uh, somebody else is doing it even better than they are now. But uh, that was fun. I, I love this stuff, physics. I mean, that's what's you know. I was so looking forward to this movie, and I was so uh, glad. I knew there was going to be a Scientology connection. I knew that Leo Zillard thing was going to be in there, and we'd be able to talk about Hubbard claiming. That he had something to do with these scientists. Isn't that great? Yeah. I remember when I first saw um, that book all about ra radiation. And I looked at it and it said, written by a medical doctor and a nuclear physicist. I think right. is what it says on it. Right. I thought, really? I wonder who that is. I had no idea Hubbard was claiming to be the nuclear physicist. That's right. That's right. Oh, well. Scientology never fails to abuse. Yeah. Yes, endless source uh, source of entertainment. <laughs> All right, Bruce, thank you so much. I love hearing about your project. That was cool. And we got to see a good movie, huh? It was great. I, I was really glad I went. It was just, I was really impressed. Really. Oh, so great. And, you know, and it's, I love a movie about something, you know, and they're, you know, a movie for adults that's, that is, Go get you, learn about this stuff. Be entertained. It's everything. Yeah, had everything. Great visuals. Fantastic great sound. Shot, great shots of like panorama out in the desert and stuff. It was. It was. It had everything. Oh, fantastic! All right, Bruce. Listen, thank you so much. Always great to talk to you, man. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Again, again, again.